So, Berto, why do serial killers kill? Because they like it. Why? Or no, is, is there such a thing as evil, evil people? People have a conception in their minds that some things are evil. Is the death penalty ethical? I don't think it's necessary. Uh, ethical, I'm probably going to say no. Why do we send people to prison, actually? One reason is to keep them away from society because they could hurt society. What is the insanity defense? What do you think? That's when you claim or your attorneys claim that um, you were not in control of your own actions due to some you know, brain defect or a brain malfunction. Did Ted Bundy have dissociative identity disorder? Did he have multiple personalities? Based on the information that was presented in the documentary, I would buy it, but I had never thought about that. How come when you and I get angry, we, we don't kill the way other people do? We don't have the same psychology. So in this episode, we're going to go in much more detail on these questions. What do you say, Berto? Let's do it. My name is Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Berto? My name is Umberto Casagna, and I teach people how to whip it, whip it good. Trigger alert, by the way, obviously. So the documentary we watched on HBO 2020, uh, directed by Alex Gibney, who also did Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. Which is one of my favorite documentaries. Going Clear, the Scientology doc, uh, the Elizabeth Holmes documentary that we watched a, few, mm-hmm. a couple years ago, and Crime of the Century, the Opiate Crisis documentary we watched a, a couple, few months ago. Yep. So the documentary on HBO is about Dr. Dorothy Lewis, a psychiatrist who studies the psychological reasons behind violent crimes. She asserts that murderers often have the following factors in their history, child abuse, brain dysfunction, and what they call psychotic thinking or paranoid thinking. And so child abuse, brain dysfunction, and or psychotic thinking, if not all, equal, as they say, a dangerous, violent serial killer or, you know, hurtful person, someone who murders, someone who is violent. And basically the whole thesis of the documentary is, you know, people are not born evil. It has to develop somehow. Berto, what do you think about that? So, I, I, again, I, I think the word evil is just a word that, that we have. Um, so as far as, like, are people... Well, what do people mean by evil when they say that person is evil? Ted Bundy right. is evil. Right. I, I think there is there is a platonic conception that there is such a thing as, you know, absolute good, good, absolute evil. It's a bit of a religious thing as well. You know, God is good, devil is bad. And so... They, I think they believe that, that some people actually are demonic. They are uh, outside of the physical. They are in some way on the evil spectrum. Yeah, I suppose it's kind of two levels. One is the literal demon or devil uh, being possessed or, or swayed by the devil of the devil of hell or something. And certainly there's a lot of people who believe in that or some shade of that. As we talk about it, the other version I think uh, that's, I think, more prevalent in Western society today, which is that some people are born evil or they're quote-unquote sociopaths. You know, there's this idea of, uh, well, that person, my, you know, my ex-husband, he's sociopathic. You know, he's a sociopath or... Obviously, Logan Paul is a sociopath. I think we have this pretty strong notion of that, you know, maybe they wouldn't say, well, I don't think Logan Paul is evil. But the way they talk about it, it's, 
like, yeah, there's something different. They're almost like a different species of animal. Right. And I think it is a placeholder word for different. I, I, I've always thought of it as uh, everything is a bell curve, right? And so there are these individuals that fit further right or left, however you want to think about it, of the norm of the majority of, of humans in their behavior and, and what they end up doing. And so it's sort of convenient to label that as, okay, that is outside of this norm. Let's give that a word and let's call that either evil or maybe sociopathic or whatever, you know. Right. Yeah. There's us over here right. who are normal humans who have, quote unquote, humanity. Right. And then there's this different species of human that is capable of murder right. and serial killing and embezzling billions of dollars because you're what's his face uh, ponzi right uh what was his name was his name ponzi yeah uh arthur ponzi or something. yeah <laughs> but what was the, the modern guy? yeah anyway point yeah. is is that uh there's this notion bernie made up that's bernie bernie there's this uh notion that it's the other because it is a comforting idea that there's these rare individuals who are capable of doing quote unquote evil. And then there's everyone else. I'm not capable of doing evil. The person next to me isn't a sociopath. They're not capable of doing evil. And therefore I feel safer. Uh, there are the wolves in the wilderness that are trying to get us the, you know, the boogeyman, the, the evil presence, the Saurons of, you know, you got the Saurons and you got, Every you know all the nice people and the hobbits and the, it, there's there's the good and the bad and it it I think it one is infused in our culture and our storytelling and our religions but it's also just extremely comforting to believe that these are different species right right now I I do believe in practice it ends up working out sort of to the same net effect um, these individuals that do these things that whether you label them evil or whatever you want to label them. They are operating outside the norm, and they are harming right. others. Right. And we've had debates about this before, that uh, you can have someone who murders, even as a serial killer, and doesn't qualify for any diagnosis in the DSM, other than perhaps antisocial personality disorder by definition, because they're doing antisocial things and, and they don't have remorse. But you can have someone who actually does have remorse and does have empathy and for whatever reason, political or otherwise, makes choices that are psychopathic from the outside. But they're but when we evaluate them, they actually don't possess any diagnosis. You know, mm -hmm. that our field is not set up to label those people. Our, our field is set up to label those with mental disorders that are causing problems that are in their life and are uh, centered around a, a concept of a construct that there's something wrong with their personality, you know, like major depression, you have a, a mood problem, you have all these different symptoms to go along with it. Uh, of course, we would look at murderous behavior as something wrong and, and destructive and problematic. But if that's all they did, and say they go home and they exhibit empathy everywhere else, which happens sometimes, but trying to explain that to people, that's absurd. Of course, a serial killer can't be a normal human being, can't be they can't have empathy, right? They can't be just like everyone else when that's not frequently what happens, but it, it can, you know, it absolutely can, and, and it does. And that's, that's hard to accept for people because I think that we like to um, 
otherize these, which I get, but that's not what psychology and the DSM is set up for. And then you and I had a debate about a related part of this, which is um, I had this hypothesis that the DSM is uh, prejudiced against or towards blue collar uh, diagnoses, not white collar diagnoses. And what I meant by that was that I don't remember this. You said this out loud to me? Yeah, it was during one of the episodes about... Um, because I was talking about like Bernie Madoff or these sort of individuals mm-hmm. and who we would not conclude... Well, I don't know. You know, Maybe they do have something you could diagnose them with. Well, but from a distance, you'd be like, well, no, they were just a greedy Wall Street banker, right? Well, one, if your case is that the field of psychology and psychiatry and the DSM have a, has a classist streak then yeah of course yeah uh it is a, a a human endeavor and we are classists as as humans because uh, i was trying i was trying to label i forget who it was but i was trying to be like look there's got to be some label we can apply to this not we don't have to that's that was what i and what i was, was telling like as a society we should and as a society <laughs> as society absolutely yeah. you and you could say evil or you could say, "Well, I want something uh, more practical." <laughs> criminal. You could say harmful, but what? Well, by practical, do you mean like narcissistic? Because no, that's not a no. pro, "quote unquote" practical term. That's a psychiatric term. But I guess I want. See, I'm both your biggest ally in this conversation and also your biggest detractor because <laughs> I fully believe it all comes down to the brain, a hundred percent. Yeah. But therefore, if you're defrauding millions and sleeping well at night. I think you're outside the norm. Well, if the experience of the individual is noticing the pain of others and really aware of it and sleeps well at night, then yeah, that we would look towards a a construct of psychopathy. Of course, it's just a label we use to describe something like there's good art and bad art. What's, What's the scientific delineation between good art and bad art there there is kind of but not really in the same way that with you know psychopathy it's it's a checklist that it has a lot of opinion baked into it and a lot of observational quirks baked into it um but if you anyway we'll get more into that later but um so dr dorothy lewis is the subject of this documentary and she is saying she's fighting like Mindhunter, the TV show that we would review sometimes, this notion that was highly prevalent in the 70s and 80s that these serial killers, which were on the rise at the time, seemingly, uh, and we did a whole episode about whether or not it's lesser now than it was before or yeah. if it just is not talked about as much, which seems to be the truth, honestly. But there was this you know, uh, focus on like, why are these people doing it? and trying to catch them and law enforcement and society, uh, were just very comfortable in their perspective that these, there's something different about these people. They're monsters, they're evil, they are psychopathic or, you know, there's something they're other and they're born that way. And they're, you know, there's no sympathy. I don't care what they went through. I don't care if they were abused. I don't care if they have feelings. They did terrible things and they deserve to die. They deserve to be executed or at least life in prison. And there's no point in trying to get to know their backstory. Mindhunter, which is based on a real FBI agent, right, who was 
um, ridiculed for saying, no, we, ha- we have to look at why these people are doing these things so that we can actually catch them. Right. If we study the convicted serial killers, then we might be able to catch the at-large serial killers or even exactly. prevent ones. Dr. Dorothy Lewis, a, a psychiatrist at the same cohort, is arguing the same kinds of things. Right. She's ridiculed, which Berto would... I'm trying to figure out, because, you know, the way that Mindhunter and the way this documentary depicts the 70s, 80s, 90s, it's like these very strange individuals saying, like, you know, we probably should do do some psychological profiling. Yeah. And by its nature, you're looking for reasons slash excuses-ish in their murdering, you know. And often you would find horrific childhood abuse or brain damage yeah. or seizures or, or something. Or both, or all of the above. <laughs> yeah. Um, mental illness, you know, schizophrenia, mild schizophrenia. And in the past, they would say, so what? Are you saying that you're just excusing their behavior? And the FBI agent and Mindhunter and Dorothy Lewis would say, no, I, I think they should be locked up <laughs> forever. But I, I'm just trying to figure this out. Are we still there in 2021, or has have has the has have their notions that they pioneered been so baked into our culture and maybe even criminal, uh, you know, law and the legal system and the you know investigation system that their ideas are the dominant, or you know, which one is it? So I feel like in some ways we're worse off because uh, there's a significant percentage of the population that now not only demonizes actual serial killers. But they demonize people like politicians and right. actors and stuff. Or people on the other side of the aisle. Right. But I mean, when I mean demonize, meaning like say... Like their neighbor who, who has a certain flag outside their, you know... Right. And, and what I mean by demonize, I mean they say things... The kinds of things you would have said about a serial killer, right? You would have said, Ted Bundy is demonic. He worships Satan, right? Well, now they're like, you know, this person smells of sulfur. They are a demon. They eat babies, right? Yeah. but yeah. And so I'm saying yeah. like... There's we, a percentage. I, normally I'd be like, come on. But we did the Q&A yeah, right. episode. It's like, no, something like 15% yeah. of Americans so, believe that. So we're, it's almost like, I feel like the goalpost has moved further back. It's like, wait, we're now having a conversation about the sanity of people that are otherwise perfectly sane. And I would extend <laughs> it to really everyone. You know, when I hear my... Uh, you know, inner circle or well, I don't know what you call it, but pretty much everyone around me is left-leaning. The way that they talk about Republicans is similar, even if they are moderate Republicans. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if they voted Republican in any kind of a way, it's there's a very dehumanizing. They they must be evil. They must be out to controlled, you know, the the kinds of statements. And I don't know what they mean. But anyway, regarding murders only, yeah. Berto, well, do you think that the, I mean, who knows, because you and I wouldn't know, but do you think the average investigator or judge or... Yeah, I don't, I definitely have no idea about the state of the inner working. Yeah. What I see from the outside, because I, I watch a lot of those videos of the inter- police integrations of the murderers and things like that. Um, I think... People still think of, you know, like the guy who kills his wife and the kids, you know, whatever, as those people are evil. That's just an evil person. Right. And and there's and that's all you have to say. And that's it's all you have like to say. He's, he's a monster. Yeah. He must have been born that way. Right. Who cares he, about the, the reason? Like, it's yeah. just, you know. He's like Damien. Right. He was always born that way. Exactly. And, and And so from my perspective, I don't know if that's 
let me put it in a different way. Like I wa- like look, I've been doing this podcast with you forever, right? I watched this documentary. I never heard of her and I never heard or maybe I forgot about that Ted Bundy theory. Like I'm like, "Oh, that's interesting." Yeah. In fact, you know, even just the aspects of like Ted Bundy hadn't didn't have a normal childhood. I know you and I like to talked about it a bit, but I think a lot of the common wisdom is still, yeah, Ted Bundy came out of nowhere. He was like right. totally normal. Yeah, and we'll get into more detail on Ted Bundy and the factors that are thought to develop violent behavior, including murder, including being a serial killer. So Dr. Uh, Dorothy Lewis became famous as someone who would go into court and would provide testimony um, regarding, hey, yeah, this guy murdered someone. He's admitting or you know, the evidence is in that direction. But let's look at his childhood. Let's look at his mental illness. Let's look at his dissociative identity disorder. Let's look at his uh, brain injury that he went through. Let's look at his seizures. And people reacted against her thinking, oh, you're being soft on crime. You're, this is just some you know, political thing against the death penalty. What do you think about all that? Uh, as far as soft on crime, I, th- I do think that's a misinterpretation for sure because uh, I, I haven't really heard... I've told you before, Sam Harris regularly argues about how um, his position is, we have no free will, therefore we should have empathy, but it doesn't mean we just like don't put people in jail. It doesn't mean we don't punish crimes, right? Uh, so I, I do think that there's a misinterpretation regularly, which is if we even begin to examine or try to understand the, the motivations that we're somehow excusing or, or saying that we're going to allow the behavior or that we're going to not respect the victims or, or, you know, any number of things, right? Uh, and that's certainly, I mean, they made that very clear and there's an interview in there in somewhere in the documentary. They're asking them and both her and her, her partner, I don't know who that gentleman was, but they both are saying, no one is arguing anything about not putting these people away from society. That's not the question. Right. It's just simply not the question at all. Right. <laughs> the question is early detection, one. Two, uh, early prevention. Three, being able to profile these folks so you could find them more readily. Um, you know, four, it'll affect sentencing. If someone doesn't suffer from a mental illness and they, they just decided they're just going to kill a bunch of people, because... You know, I wonder what Dr. Dorothy Lewis would say about people today, because mass murder is on the rise. Uh, it's still relatively rare. Right. But the Las Vegas shooter, for yeah. example, I, I can't remember. And, you know, of course, podcast people out there don't quote me on this, but I seem to remember that he was at least, you know, posthumously found to not suffer from any kind of mental illness. He at some point just decided he was angry at the world and just wanted to kill a bunch of people. Right. And, uh, you know, what, what does that, what does that say about human nature and about human behavior? You know, the, the thing that I, I always bring this back to is someone walks, you know, they're walking down the street and they have this extremely unusual outfit on, you know, like, uh, like Lady Gaga's meat dress or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, It's their fashion choice. They're walking down the street and you're looking at them just thinking, that is a disgusting looking outfit. I can't believe you walked out of the house (laughs) with that. What's wrong with you? But we don't 
uh, sit there and debate and have documentaries about why that person dressed the way that they do. We don't, we don't care. We're just like, well, I don't know why that person decided to dress like that, I, it, but it doesn't matter. There's, all, there's a lot of behaviors that right. humans do that we have no answer for, and yet we see examples of individual choices all the time. People yeah. make very strange choices all the time that don't fit the average choice. But when it comes to murder, then we're like, oh, we have to figure out an answer, and two, we have an answer. And the thing I will say is, no, we do not. In the same way, I don't understand why I became a podcaster. I don't have a scientific answer to that. I don't have a scientific etiology. Like, why is the moon around? Well, we have theories about a, a body hitting the earth, and we have models, and there's evidence like, well, you look at the makeup of the moon and the earth, you know. There's things that we can figure out, like, well, there, there's models, there's theories. But when it comes to why did I become a podcaster, these questions, there are too many factors, many of which we have zero way of measuring. You know, we can't we don't understand the brain to the extent that uh, we would need to to answer such a question. And so when it comes to serial killing, um, it's just you know we can we can have models and we should but we should also be extremely tentative about those models and add to that like she pointed something out which i think is is quite right uh there's a, a push pull between hey listen um sure if we're going to have leniency we should have leniency uh about the lesser crimes but when the crimes are egregious and super violent and like they did all these crazy movie like things that's where we should have zero leniency. And she was pointing out, well, leniency aside, what's what's ironic here is that the worst crimes, like the worst descriptions of those crimes, likely that individual had the worst childhood and abuse and or mental trauma and or brain injuries, you know? So one thing I'm thinking about is when we saw more serial killers, uh, which were doing these kind of atrocious murders that were very like over the top and in sequence and all these things. Uh, those individuals are much rarer in the, in the common population. Uh, but nowadays, you could have more individuals that are somewhat damaged, but not damaged enough that you would detect anything in any sort of brain scan and potentially nothing in like a psychological profile or something. But they had some experiences throughout their life, starting young, that left them at just the right edge that because they can grab a gun that kills so quickly, they now kill 20 people. Right. Now, they didn't go on a systematic 10-year run killing one person here, one person there, one, and all of them in super elaborate ways because that was not in their head. They didn't have that kind of damage. Right. The, again, that I've said before, factor that often... <laughs> gets ignored sometimes not even talked about is the suicidality involved yeah. in these mass shootings so many of these individuals yeah. we talk about elliot roger for example were suicidal primarily right, right. and vengeful secondarily yeah so and it's, things, it's not the same profile as someone who's trying not to get caught right like ted bundy yeah. was well, he wasn't suicidal yeah. uh and so many of these mass shooters are just like well I don't have any reason to live. I hate myself and I'm pretty angry at the world and I might as well bring some people down with me. Right. Uh, it's, it's that kind of thinking anyway, again, but, uh, 
most, the vast, vast majority of people who have suicidal thoughts would never do that. The vast, vast majority of people who have brain injury would never do that. The vast, vast majority of people who have mental illness would never kill. So it's a bit of a weird thing to identify the factors that the vast, vast majority of time don't result in that behavior, but we use them as factors in their killing behavior. For example, the the vast majority of of killers, murderers, mass killers, uh, serial killers are men. Why aren't we saying, well, being a man is a factor in these things? We don't say that because it seems kind of given or kind of a silly observation, but no one's ever talking about well, what is it? Diff- what's the biological difference between men and women? What's the socialization different? What are yeah. the experiences for men and women that are different growing up? And you know, but it. My point is, is that I believe that uh, you know, Dr. Dorothy Lewis and others make a good case, and it totally fits with my way of thinking about how people operate, which is that when you have brain damage, it can cause all sorts of things. In a very small percentage, it will cause things that will result in murder. But, you know, you have brain damage can result in personality changes, depression, anxiety, mania, uh, compulsions, um, passing out, seizures. You know, the brain is our the center of our personality. Right, and you, right. you introduce an intrusion and there's going to be abnormalities that are possibly in one of the thousand abnormalities could be a compulsion to kill or inability to edit yourself you know that's what they're saying about one of the individuals was that the frontal lobe was scarred which in the frontal lobe we know has to do with editing our behavior editing our impulses he had the worst of both worlds because he had a, a growth in his limbic system right and no and, and you know and and uh attenuated attenuation well so along lobe. those lines okay, okay so and we'll get to him later uh arthur Shawcross, shock Shawcross, a, a serial killer that was put to death, I believed. Um, he was found to have a, a cyst near his limbic system, and Dr. Lewis made the argument that that would affect your... That, that increased his anger and his uh, responses of trying to kill. and Because your limbic system has, is more of your... what they call the primitive brain, but there's problems with that. Your emotions, your hunger, your sex drive it, it generally yeah. comes from that area and then he had scarring in his prefrontal cortex which has to do with you know checking in like okay i want to punch this person in the face but i probably shouldn't punch them and your 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 prefrontal cortex has to do with that it has to do yeah. with restraint and and planning and you know if i punch him in the face then i'll go to jail and i don't want to go to jail punch him in the face, go to jail, don't punch him in the face, don't go to jail, uh, okay, I'm, I won't punch him. You know, all that thinking happens in the prefrontal cortex in a way that a lot of animals, particularly animals that don't have a strong prefrontal cortex, have no ability to think. They just they just act. Yeah. You know, Like when your cat gets scared, just runs out of the room. It doesn't have the ability to be like, is there something actually that I'm afraid of or am I re- and, overreacting right now? And which, by the way, like an animal, especially a, um, a predator-type animal, uh, there's definitely no question of evil in the in there. You know, it's like, oh, this thing's a threat. If I can slash because I have claws, I will. I will right. destroy this thing because I need to right now. And we're animals, so and this is fine. Yeah, and there and there is no judgment on it. Right. 
there's literally no judgment. There's just like, oh yeah, of course I killed. That's what I do. Right. <laughs> but somehow we're supposed to be different animals, right? right? Um, and we should be, you know, right. and we have the ability to, um, civilize ourselves, meaning with laws and with guidance. And as individuals, we have the ability to internalize those rules and let them guide our behavior anyway. So that was the argument that you have this scarring of the, you have the cyst, but there is no way to know that the cyst actually caused him to have more aggression. There's no way to know that the scarring in his prefrontal cortex affected him. There are people who lack an entire section of their brain, sometimes half of their brain, and they have all the abilities that, um, you know, we would hope someone, we would wish for someone to have to function in society. So again, the arguments that the that Dr. Dorothy Lewis are, are making are in this documentary, I, I'm behind and I think are strong hypotheses, but we do not have the ability to answer them at this point. Right. But but do keep in mind, like when you when you're trying someone for murder, remember that it's it is a, a gray area and it is a matter of choice by the jurors, right? Yeah. And so it's if they have reasons to doubt, that's okay. And so Presenting that kind of evidence is relevant in that context. Sure. Because they that can shed some doubt. Uh, yeah. I don't know how or jury sh- members... Uh, cast some doubt, sorry. Yeah. I don't know how jury members interpret expert information like that, but the way that the documentary laid it out, there was no other... Like, if they had turned to me and say, okay, what do you think about what Dorothy Lewis just said? I would say there's a strong possibility that the... Uh, what they found in the MRIs had some effect on his personality, but at this point in time, we have no way of knowing if it did. But it sounded like, I don't even know if it was presented because she said that the prosecutors didn't want to use any of that. Yeah, but but I'm just saying, if you didn't know any better and you watched this documentary, yeah. you would say like, oh my God, they found this scientific evidence that backs up that his brain was damaged or um, abnormal in a way that isn't his fault. You know, that's how, that's another thing we think about. If you get cancer, it's not your fault, right? If you get brain cancer and you didn't do anything willingly to raise your risk of that or something, or even if you did, right? We don't think of that as you're to blame for that. And if you're not to blame for the cancer in your brain, then you're, and the cancer in the brain affects your personality in a certain way, then we say, well, you're not to blame for that, right? I mean, that's kind of the point of what she's saying. Well, and I I go way, way, way further. I think I I mentioned, no, I know I mentioned this before. Um, So I've definitely come to believe that blame is a a total meaningless thing because uh, no one is ultimately, no, no one can really control from the start of their being born and, and all the way through whatever they do they can't really control the variables, right? So in the end, no one is really in control of their life to some level. So rather than punitive and like angry punishment, I always think of it now as like, well, it sucks. This is tragic all around, but we need to contain this individual. We can't have them integrated in society anymore because we think this is a bad match. Uh, however, I do believe that if while you're making those determinations, if someone's doing something so outside the norm and they happen to have abnormal brain damage, that should be listed in the factors to consider, even if you can't prove conclusively, 
right? And you should say, and the reason I, I say that is because... Meaning that their sentence should be reduced or the charge should be reduced? Well, in this case, about the death penalty. Because what happens is that most people don't agree with me. Most people do believe there is free will. And people, most people are in charge of their own decisions. So, of course, they're going to believe, unless someone convinces them that someone is literally uh, missing all their faculties or was having a psychotic delusion or something... They're going to believe that person was fully in control over their destiny, their life, and their decisions. Therefore, we should punish them and kill them. And Well, not everyone that believes in free will believes in the death penalty. Fair enough. But I think a lot of, a lot of people, especially back then, I think might have that tendency, right? Because like, you know, it's a natural human to, thing. To uh, uh, propose the death penalty, I would imagine that you would have to have a foundational belief that the individual made a choice to commit. Exactly. Crime. And I think throughout history, humans are vengeful. You know, like all our history is full of like, the, and then this house came back and took over this house. And God, <laughs> God is vengeful. Yeah, exactly. So we're vengeful. And vengeance implies that we believe the other person, the other entity made conscious choices and we judge those. And now we're going to go and make things right. Okay. Because that's the world we live in, I think it is relevant to add those bits of information because, in this case, that scientist doesn't want that individual to be put to death. And the only way they might have a chance to convince that jury to not put them to death is by introducing that doubt. And so I, I think that that's appropriate, even if there is no proof. Yeah. And just to briefly summarize the free will discussion as I understand it, there is a common simplistic belief that humans are always in control of everything they do and that any behavior you observe in another person or you hear about them doing in the past was done with sufficient forethought and volition and understanding of what one did. You know, I... Um, uh, I actually, uh, for the very first time in my life, at the age of 50, was the cause of a fender bender. I didn't mm -hmm. hit another car. I hit a pole in a parking lot. Oh. So, one, I have this bigger car now, which I've mm -hmm. never had before. Two, the parking lot parking spaces were some of the tightest parking spaces I've ever... Oh, I you know what those. I mean? Oh, no, I hate those. Yeah. Three... The post is this skinny post in my uh, in my blind spot. Oh, no. So, you know, it's one thing if there's a whole wall right next to you, you know, as you're pulling out. Right. You can see, you look out your... I get in the car and I, you know, and the other thing is cars now have these reverse cameras. Right, the little cameras, yeah. And so what I do, and the other thing is cars now, when if you just look back on most cars... You can't really see out the back because of the all the structure that. Because mm -hmm. back in the day, there was hardly any structure to right. the car right? for safety <laughs> reasons or style reasons or something. Now you need a camera because you can't you can't really tell <laughs> can't what's back there, you know. And, and the so, windows are darker too, right? Yeah. And so I, um, you know, I, it's my fault. I should have known, but uh, yeah, I, I, I was. So the the poles on my left. Uh, blind spot and I was kind of turning right as I was pulling out of the parking spot you know and backing up or left sorry anyway and I just 
you know, my door hit the thing. And was, uh, did I do that on purpose? You know, most people would say no. But did I neglect to look? Well, yeah, because that's my responsibility, right? right? I made a choice to not look, to not turn my head and look in the blind spot, which is what right. I should have done. And that was a choice I made. Other people would say, well, given all the factors that, I, you know, I was with my niece and we were chatting about some nerd stuff. She likes nerd things, Dungeons and Dragons and stuff. And and so I was, I get pretty distracted when I'm having a conversation while driving. Whenever I almost get into a fender better, it's always right. because I was talking to someone <laughs> in my car. Um, anyway, so the, the, the debate is, um, does someone, you know, on one hand, it's this kind of silly notion that we always have free will that if, you know, you take someone and you, you beat them down, you oppress them, you are racist towards them, you fire them unfairly, they're in poverty, they're unemployed, and then you know, a police officer pulls them over and is just like, uh, doesn't give them a warning, gives them a ticket, and the individual gets aggressive somehow, right. or, you know, verbally or physically or something. And it's like, well, hey, that's your choice. But then uh, when we start to take context into consideration, when we start to take the brain in consideration, yeah. we know that, no, <laughs> we are not, completely volitionally acting individuals we are you know biological things that have all these impulses and brains that are just a bunch of mush in our brain and we have contextual things and mood things and diet things and sleep things and neurochemical things and so therefore we have no free will in fact you know they'll they'll they always come up with this study that they point to that says they studied humans and said that they found that before every action, there was a precursor in the brain that, you know, predated, you know, was before the person even noticed that they wanted to make a choice. Yeah, but that 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 one's that one's basically a, a game of words because right. it, we are now all of a sudden separating parts of our brain into this part is you and this part isn't you. Right. And I don't I don't think that's yeah. useful. Okay, but they always point to that yeah. and. Uh, which is silly uh, for that and other reasons. Plus, if you look at the design of the study, it's not really answering the question about everyday choices. They're just looking at certain signals in the brain that they controlled for in the lab. Anyway, right. so um, the, the, the impressive study would be if if you could, which we can't, but if right. you could somehow predict, let's say even ten minutes ahead of time based on variables that you would analyze on a supercomputer and say. This human is going to do this, and then the human does that reliably, one hundred percent of the time. Well, even now that, we know. <laughs> even that would be hard, you know, to <clears throat> to nail down because if you know you have certain subconscious signaling of hunger that sure. are pre-conscious uh, that can be seen in the brain, and then ten minutes later it becomes more. Oh, conscious. I don't even mean br from brain signals. I just mean you are simulating the universe at least in that room or whatever, to such a degree that you can actually predict what someone's brain will output. Yeah. Then you've proven that the brain is deterministic. Well, um, I don't know. You know, we did, we, I'm reminded of our conversation in devs because this was the whole, that whole conversation, right? But anyway, I find that 
the it's usually dudes who are on the internet just railing about how stupid all the sheeple are for believing that they have free will when in fact they don't. And I find both groups to be silly. The question of free will is so complicated and the question of consciousness is so complicated to reduce it to statements of I have total free will or no one has free will is incredibly reductive. And, um, and to some extent, as I think you were saying, kind of a moot point because it's like, well, we have to do something. We have to operate in a world that takes into account choice. Otherwise, you know, we should just throw up our hands and say life is meaningless. It, it, yeah, the, the, the only part where I actually found value in it was the, the thing, the Sam Harris angle, which is what, how should we feel and, and how should we feel when we are taking action about things that people do? Right. And, and so... The the I but the but the free will aspect of that, which is part of it, but to focus on that instead of focusing on, look, let's look at, let's let's move away from the all free will point of view, and let's start taking into account not only free will, but also contextual things, neurochemical things, societal things, mood things, other other factors that are not under that person's control and isn't reasonable to expect that humans would be able to to monitor or control those kinds of things. And we have to, one, because that's fair and it's a more accurate way of looking at human behavior. And two, it helps us to intervene. You know, if we're just going to look at how, how do we prevent X from happening, we have to take in consideration context, not just free will. That I get. But, this, but to say that we have no free will... <laughs> I find to be too simplistic. Well, maybe, but the the way to me is like it's it's undoubtable to me that there there can't be such a thing in any universe as the free will as we think we define it as commonly simplistically understood. But yeah. I have a notion of free will that takes into account all the you know, known science uh, that we have that includes uh, all the things that I've mentioned. If, if, and if and I, call, talking, I call a component of human behavior having to do with quote-unquote free will. Yeah, if, if you just mean, hey, we live in a society with laws and so we're going to enforce those laws, I'm with you. We should enforce our laws because we are part of the machine and just like we're, we're, we're carrying out the uh, the program, so to speak. But... In reality, um, every single thing that's happening, every single thing that's happening is the culmination of every single thing before that, right? So th this is why I believe that, and, and trust me, for a lot of my life, I, I was like, oh, I wish I could punish bad people. And, you know, I was like, I had all these fantasies of how much I would torture someone that was bad and stuff. Just kind of crazy, right? But but now I think of it like, oh, I see. That's a that's that's the moot point because, um, of course, we humans we are within the machine, so we don't want chaos, we don't want death, we don't want all these things, even whether or not those are meaningless in a universal sense. We don't want them, so we do have rules, we have laws, we should enforce them, we should keep people separated that can't follow them, etc. But there's no point in being angry. And, oh, they need to pay. Oh, we should torture them. Because it turns out they're just following along. 
They're just following the natural consequence of everything that was put into their, into their head, into their path, into their surroundings, etc. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and to me, and I get the connection between the free will discussion and laws and like political anger or something. But to me, those are separate but related ideas. So when people, you know, people, when I start saying, you know, there is some free will, I think some people are saying. So are you saying we're, you know, it's justified to do X, Y, and Z to these people because of the choices they make? I'm like, where, how did we get there? I mean, I get it, but yeah. uh, uh, what we do with laws and punishment or anger at certain groups of people, I, I, yeah, th- that's a, that's, we can still have, you can have the idea of free will inserted into behavior and also have compassion for people that are doing things that are destructive to, that are, that you deem as destructive. I don't think that by assigning free will that somehow justifies political wrongdoing or harm to other groups of people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, before we go to break, um, let me go over a couple of things. So, because uh, I want to close out the discussion of why serial killers will kill or why murders will kill that's proposed by this documentary. So they say that has to do with abuse, right? A, a lot of times, but not all the time. But how do we answer this question? When you find, because it's all retrospective, right? We don't have video cameras and particularly, we'd, we'd have to be inside the child's mind because abuse is, perce- is perceived. Uh, one child will be treated in a harsh way and will receive it like less damaging to them, where the other, other child would receive it as very damaging to them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, you know, which one is it? Um, how do we measure? So, you know, we, so we go to the serial killers and we have to, and usually it's us trying to ask them what their childhood was like. Yeah. How do we know they're telling the truth? And even if they are, how do we know relative abuse to other people? Because really everyone is mistreated kind of growing up. Now, there's certain things where you're like, whoa, that's way beyond. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, ha- you know, having sex with your mother, your mother raping you as a child is uh, obviously off the charts on, on some in some yeah. way. But how do we know they're telling the truth, right? And what about all the other people who are abused in the identical way and they would never kill? So it's hard to know. Uh, but at the same time, all the data and all the experiences I've had tell me that you abuse a child, there's a much higher likelihood of a lot of things, including a small percentage, psychopathy and a small percentage of the psychopaths is murder, but it's a very squishy area. And the documentary doesn't really talk about that. The other thing here is that with brain damage, that's the other hypothesis, which again, I agree with a lot of data seems to point in that direction, but lots of people with quote unquote brain damage, identical to the people presented in this documentary. In fact, 99.999% of them never kill anyone. So what's up with that? How, you know, but how do we know? Well, it, it it's a strong hypothesis. There's there's some circumstantial evidence. In the future, we'll probably nail down the exact uh, function and the exact micro measurements to figure out. You know, the, this person has brain, brain damage in this way that affects the wiring in this way that if you know leads to down the road violent behavior. Whereas this person has a different kind of brain damage that affects this thing. You know, I'm guessing we'll get there, but we're not there yet. The third thing is is that. Um, the uh, idea of psychosis and paranoid thinking that can lead to, to lead to this sort of thing. 
again, most people with schizophrenia, vast, vast majority of those with who are on the spectrum of paranoid uh, psychotic thinking, never kill anyone. Right. But it seems a strong hypothesis that when you do have paranoid thinking, particularly when you, but when we'll go, we'll go into some actual cases that after the break, it's like, oh, well, yeah. I mean, if you believe that, then murder almost seems like absolutely Necessary, logical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I just want to point out that again that we just don't have the ability to answer these questions but the criminal justice system kind of depends on us answering these questions and and moral justice um uh, systems you know protocols depend on us having some answers to these questions but but we just don't and now it also it seemed to me like the biggest rift between the doctor and her community was around the MPD, right? The multiple personnel. Right, which we'll get into in a second. Yeah. But let's take a break. What do you say, Berto? Let's do it. Hey, deserving listeners. As you all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy, and you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to betterhelp.com Kirk to get 10% off your first month today. Okay, we're back from the break. So I'm going to run by some scenarios by you, Berto, and you can tell me whether, you know, what the cause is of the behavior and if the person should go to prison for life or okay. death, death penalty or whatever. My perspective or like the... Your perspective. Okay. A woman suffers from mild delusions. These are real cases, by the way. Mild suffers from mild delusions. She's in and out of treatment. Her symptoms kind of come and go. Some days she has, you know, a lot of symptoms, sometimes not. But she, you know, she does, she's doing okay. She's functioning, raising kids. You know, she's married. Her husband is, for separate reasons, just doesn't want to be with her anymore and asks for a divorce. She gets very stressed out. Her symptoms increase quite a bit. She goes to the hospital because she's depressed and she's starting to see things, you know, hear voices, put on meds. Meds work kind of, but she may or may not take the meds, you know, being discharged. Her symptoms become very pronounced and she believes that her two young daughters need to die or else the devil will take them. <laughs> and she kills her two young daughters. And she is, you know, she turns herself in probably at some point. And there's an investigation. They take the history. She is symptomatic. Uh, she goes on meds. She realizes what she did. She feels terrible. What's the cause? I mean, but that's the observation, right? Yeah. Like, uh, the, we don't know what's in her mind. We can't know. Right. She could be faking the whole thing. She could have killed her kids because cause there are people who do that when yeah. 
a divorce is happening either out of revenge or they are you know sometimes it's like well if if we don't have kids maybe you'll take me back as your wife there are people who would do that and they're not schizophrenic they're just bad actors right they're just making terrible choices so who knows but given what i said what's the cause of the murder berto well who knows but it seems like there's enough data leading up to those murders that i wouldn't ignore i'd be like well i mean that there were treatments this person was on um there were meds involved there were reports of hallucinations so yeah it seems like something the reality in her head was definitely not what was the reality so i would say she was having some sort of psychosis and that's the cause of the murder the psychosis caused the murder it sounds like there's a good chance that that's the case right yeah okay now some people would say well i don't care i mean most psychotic people don't kill their children yeah so how can the psychosis cause something that for 99.999 percent of other people with the same problem they don't do right because not every psychotic sees the same thing yeah yeah right but it but it raises this question of well if other you know because psychosis doesn't dictate that you want to kill someone yeah psychosis is a descriptor a label we put on people who are exhibiting behaviors that indicate they are not in touch with reality in in one right. or or a number of ways to believe that your children are devil children and have been possessed by the devil and need to die because of that is a break from reality. You don't understand how reality is right now. So, okay. So alcohol, you know, if, if you, if you consume a lot of alcohol, your behavior will change, you know, just that it will it, while you're intoxicated while you're intoxicated. Yeah. Yeah. However, how it will change varies dramatically by individual, by context, by, you know, any number of factors, right? Even type of alcohol. Um, so similarly, you know, if a person is day in and day out reading conspiracy theories about demon possessions and stuff like this, and maybe they're hyper-religious and they really believe this stuff and everything. Right. And, QAnon. Uh, right. And they actually develop psychoses. You know, who is to say that the topics that come up in that psychosis aren't influenced by the things that they fill their brains with day in day out someone else might be playing video games all the time and when they the psychosis comes on they see a, a red dragon protruding from their wall trying to blow fire at them or something you know so i think that there's there's likely a whole bunch of factors as to why in this case the mental issues led to the murders of the of the daughters um but it certainly was like when I'm saying it's likely was exacerbated by the psychosis, Wh whatever was in her head was exacerbated. Well, the divorce exacerbated it. Yeah. So All did she kill because around. of divorce? Well, what I'm saying is like it, 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 we could say the combination of factors with the fuel being the psychosis led to these murders. And that that's not provable, but it is. So most of the fuel, is a most, most of the fuel is the psychosis. I, I think most of the fuel to actually committing the act might be the psychosis. You are the judge now, Berto. Yeah. You got to make a choice. This, you know, the Channel 5 News is watching. The victim's family are watching. Society is watching. Oh, yeah. me For me, it's easy. I'm like, well, yeah. It, whether it's the psychosis or not, 
this deviates outside of the norm. We have to certainly remove this individual from society. How long? Um, I think since we don't have the science, look, clearly we don't have the science to demonstrate exactly that this was the cause. So therefore, we don't have the science to demonstrate to me that she won't do these kinds of things again. So I don't think this individual can be reinstated with society ever. 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 Life in prison. Until you show me the science that proves otherwise. Okay. So then expert comes forward, yeah. which is what would happen, and say, well, she is uh, not guilty by reason of insanity, which is a bit of a nonsensical phrase because it's not that they're not guilty. They're actually guilty, uh, but they're not they didn't know right from wrong so they didn't know that they were committing a crime is what that means um it's not a question of did they do it or not it's a question of did they understand what they were doing right like an extreme example would be someone takes ambien you know this is another true case woman takes ambien so did you know that ambien affects women if i remember right twice as much as it affects men i did not so when they did research on Ambien as a sleep medication, they only did it on men. Oh. Do you know why they only did it on men? Because uh, the researchers were male or something? No. Well, partially. <laughs> but most meds are only tested on men. Do you know why? No. Because they don't want women who are pregnant. Oh, okay. And they don't want to screen that. And some women might not know they're pregnant. Sure. And they don't want to screw that up. And they don't want, they don't want to be <laughs> liable for harming a fetus because, you know, medications can harm yeah. the development of an unborn child. That seems like a gaping gap. Yeah. <laughs> right? Seems like you could probably oh at least, you know, do one out of 10 trials on one. Yeah. But they, they measured the effect, you know, the dosages, and they just applied the dosage to everyone regardless of gender. And women were having humongous symptoms from this ambient thing. One of the symptoms is to be in a delirious state and do weird, almost like you're sleepwalking. It's not oh actual gosh. sleepwalking, but you, people will, in fact, on the label it says, make sure you take this drug and actually go to bed. Because <laughs> if you take it and actually go to bed, you'll fall asleep and you're you're not likely to get up and do anything. But if but people would take because it takes a while for it to kick in. Yeah. And so people would take it and they'd watch Netflix and then their brain would change to a different state, mm -hmm. highly intoxicated on an Ambien, and they would get in their car and go to seven eleven. Oh my god. And so let's say that a woman takes Ambien, it's not known to her that she's taking twice as much as she's supposed to. She gets in her car and, you know, she's highly intoxicated. You know, she doesn't have her contacts in, for example, and runs into another car and kills a family. Uh, is she to blame? What's the cause? Right. What, what do you say? Well, you're the judge. Yeah. I mean, in that case, it sounds like there is some medical evidence to show that um, Ambien is probably influencing her behavior. Yeah. But what if the family of the victims are saying she's just making an excuse. She was negligent as a car driver crossed the median because she was on her phone probably and killed my family. She's blaming Ambien. How do you know it was Ambien? And the other experts are saying, well, research shows that women in general respond, you know, we now know that women shouldn't be taking that dose and there are accounts of people getting in their car and driving around. 
So you're the judge. What do you yeah, say? Yeah, you have to look at her past behaviors. Does she have priors? Has she had other driving? Uh, okay, so let's say she does. Let's say she has two other accidents in the past ten years that didn't show, involve Ambien. Show didn't involve Ambien, but show that you know she has a slightly above average you know, incidents of um, negligent driving. Yeah, probably, I would probably up the punishment as a result. So you'd punish her? Well, certainly. You have to do something. You have to punish her? Yeah, of course. No, I mean, because that's not, that's, not that's not a given that everyone would have. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe people, I'm using the wrong word. I mean it in the legal sense. Like, there needs to be a legal repercussion for her, and I would up the ante of that legal repercussion because she has demonstrated... Like a tendency, a trend of these kinds of things, and in this case, part of her irresponsibility was not following the Ambien instructions. But it is mitigated a little bit by the fact that Ambien wasn't well tested on women, and it has these negative effects. So, what would you do to her? It's up to you. I mean, it's a scale. I have no idea what the range is, but it's probably uh, this was homicide, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's there's probably Multiple. right. There's probably some jail time that happens. How long? I have no idea, like two years or something. <laughs> like, two years? Sure. Two years jail. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, maybe 10. I don't know. <laughs> well, but that's it, just jail time. Well, like, yeah, I guess that's the system we have. You know, we have a system where if you do things like this, you have to go to jail for a while. Yeah. 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 Hmm. I mean, it doesn't, so let me put it this way. Based on everything I've heard so far, I don't think this is a person that needs to go to a psychiatric ward. Well, so let's go to our question of why do we send people to prison? Because if you're going to send her to two to 10 years in prison, we have to say, well, why judge are you sending, you know, what's your, what's your hope that's going to happen here? So there are five reasons why we send people to prison. What are the five? Well, I, I don't know societally. Like the reason I would send her away for an amount of time is to keep her away from doing, from causing more problems for the next few years. Okay. So, <laughs> That involves two. Uh, I, one is protect the public yeah. because if they're dangerous and you put them in prison, they're a lot less yeah. likely to hurt. And two is to reduce recidivism, which is related to this. Oh, thing. yeah, that one. We have a terrible system. So in this in this country, I'm aware that unfortunately by sending her to jail, I'm kind of dooming her to just become a criminal. Yeah. But she loses her job. Yeah, she I can't change the entire system overnight. Well, if, if we were in Norway, I would be more comfortable sending her to prison. Why else do we send people to prison? Um, well, I wouldn't, but people want to punish people punitively. Right. Retribution. Yeah. What else? Um, <laughs> it's the main oh. reason why supposedly we send people to prison. One of the main reasons. Wasn't it to keep them away from other people? Yeah, but rehab. We're trying to, you know, if you have a criminal... That, oh, I thought that was the res- preventing recidivism. Well, I guess yeah. maybe those are those are related. Yeah. yeah, but it's you're trying to change them. Yeah, you're trying but, to you're sending right. them away I, so I, that they emerge from prison a different person that won't commit the crime. I anymore. have no illusions that that would happen. In yes. This well, it can, you know, and there are yeah. programs that actually work in that sure. regard. But and then the other reason is a deterrent. We're trying to send a message to the other Ambien ladies. Yeah, that, that one I, I wouldn't see. Like, I do believe in some cases, prison can be a deterrent. For example, um, the mob activity has dropped considerably since the 70s and 80s because of the racketeering laws. And 
really, really aggressive prison sentences. Okay, so it can have an effect. Um, in this case, I don't think moms taking Ambien are going to read every little bit about all the court drama and see like, ooh, I better watch my Ambien consumption. So I'm not sure that this one case is going to deter others. Especially so, because I'm not even... Yeah. Like, she's got a pattern. Like, no. in fact, if it had only been the one time and this person just, I don't know, I took an Ambien, I don't know what happened, then I might not be sending them to prison. So I certainly wouldn't see that as a right. deterrent. So what some people would say, Judge, is that a more humane and rational uh, uh, sentence is that she will never probably take Ambien again. And if she does, she's, by God, going to f- follow the directions. And now that we know that she was taking twice the dose she should have, she won't take that much anymore. She, you know, she's going to do, you just kind of know if she has any, if she has half a brain, she's going to do so much. So you don't have, if, if our, if, if we're looking at the five reasons and we're trying to protect the public, that was the first reason you identified, then putting her through this process and, and even just the death of this family, cause she's, you know, from all you can tell, she's just a normal person with a normal empathy and normal remorse. Um, she will probably be the safest driver in this town moving forward. We don't have to do anything for her at this but, point. But that's not the scenario because they, they had priors. She had priors. And so I'm not sure what she's she going to do next. Prior, she had above average, uh, you know, amount of what we would consider to be just regular fender. But it's not like she, you know, careened into another family. She was at a stoplight and didn't see someone and, and hit someone, you know, barely. No one was injured, you know. Uh, okay, that, well, that so, so maybe that's different. Like, I, I, got, I guess I misunderstood. Like, it really, the details really matter because if I saw a pattern of this person, yeah, sure, currently, immediately, the reason this was exacerbated is because she was on too much Adderall. Why was she on too much Adderall? Because Ambien. she's got a pattern of irresponsibility. Ambien. She's had, oh, Ambien, sorry. She's got a pattern of irresponsibility. She's had pri- prior, I, I assumed, bad uh, crashes and things. But uh, what the lawyer would say. That's not the case. But, the right? law, but even, let's, let's say that the lawyer would say, this has nothing to do with her driving ability. It has 100% to do, her defense attorney would say, has everything to do with the Ambien. If it weren't for the Ambien, she wouldn't have gotten in, in that car. She wouldn't have gotten that crash. So you shouldn't be regarding her previous right. uh, uh, accidents as a factor here because, you know, the, for the previous three years, she's driven fine. She, there's nothing wrong with her driving. There's something wrong with the Ambien. You know, and previous three years is a long time, right? But I would say, depending on her history, depending on, did she actually take double the dose? Why did you take double the dose? She took the doctor-recommended dose. Oh, okay. See, you're adding a lot of attenuations here. That's why I said from the beginning. Well, no, no, because... She didn't know the dose was Okay, maybe I mistook that part. But I I also misunderstood that her her background in driving is a little bit more normal-sounding. So if that's all all the case, like she took the doctor-prescribed dose, yeah, she's got some fender benders, nothing bad in the last three years, then yeah, then it's probably more a case of like you know the the drugs were mostly to blame and the sentence is if that's the case i might say community service uh specifically around educating people about the risks of um whatever this ambient ambient and uh and restitution blah 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 i, I guess it's not a civil case but whatever the, the point is that might not require either 
prison sentence or maybe the not the family screams she killed my family members yep. three of them are yep. dead and you're giving her community service how dare you yeah i know ambien is a terrible drug <laughs> okay a middle-aged man and by the way it would have been different which is ironic right if it's like well she was high on heroin why would it be different because that's the way our society is right, right. heroin is illegal yeah it wasn't prescribed by a doctor right and yet, one could claim that, well, they were high. I don't know what heroin does, but pick a drug that PCP or something. She was high on PCP. Well, that's clearly the cost. Well, that would be an even better excuse, right? Like, well, I don't know. I, I, I was high on PCP. I can't be responsible for my actions. Yeah. But we'd say, well, no, you shouldn't have taken the PCP. That's illegal. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the uh, courts have ruled that way, generally speaking, yeah. that if you were out of your mind, so to speak, because of substances that you were taking right. illicitly. And that's even, that's, even alcohol. You can't use that as a defense. It was your choice to take those substances. But the Sam Harris's people of the world say it wasn't their choice to take those substances. Well, no, it, it definitely isn't, right? But it is contextually within our law system. And I don't even know who Sam Harris is. I, I just only know from, from uh, uh, Also... I would see if I were that family, I might go after the doctor. Why did you prescribe this thing? Don't you know the risks? Yeah. Yeah. Civil suit. Yeah. Um, well, then you'd have to go after Ambien themselves because they, yeah. were, they were the ones that were the makers of Ambien were yeah. telling the docs uh, to give this dose. Anyway. Um, case number three. A middle-aged man has brain surgery. Real, this real case has seizures, has a part of his brain removed to end these you know, life debilitating seizures that he was having. He's like 45 years old, has surgery, no more seizures. He's great. But, wow. um, he suddenly for the very first time in his life, according to him, yeah. has an overwhelming urge to sexually abuse children. Oh, I remember this case, not abuse the children, but to have sex with yeah, them, yeah. like three year olds, five year olds. Um, he starts downloading child pornography. He uh, is caught abusing children. He's caught with child pornography. And he claims that before the surgery, never had a thought like that. He was yeah. totally normal, you know, not a pedophile. After the surgery, not only attracted to kids, but an overwhelming compulsion that occupied his brain 24-7 to, you know, everything that he was... Every fiber of his being was, you must have sex with children. You must have sex with children. What's the cause, bro? Well, it's hard to know. They, they could be lying. We don't, if we don't have compelling evidence either way, for me, it doesn't matter as much. Because if they're abusing children, they're not in control. So we need to stop that. And I don't know if, obviously, our laws aren't set up this way. But if, if I could, I would say, give that person the option. Do you want castration or, or castration castration doesn't cost doesn't end pedophilia oh if it doesn't then it'd be i thought i thought that's one of the treatments they do chemical castration well it, whatever the point is i would be like well unfortunately not for most abusers it's not okay. a so if it's not then i would say well unfortunately you have to be removed from society i'm sorry that the 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 surgery might have caused this if you're telling us the truth but unfortunately, you know, you, so life we have no, yeah, we have no cure for pedophilia yeah. and you've done it enough. We have no way to track you. We don't have the resources. I wish we did. Okay. 
So um, there are things, and you're not in this field, so you wouldn't know, that can be done treatment-wise and have been shown to have some effect, maybe not as sure of effect as we would need in order to, say, let them back into society, but that won't take away the pedophilia, as you said, but will take away the behavior. You know, yeah. giving people ways of managing their compulsion, this similar way of someone who's addicted to heroin or alcohol right. or gambling, the urge might always be there, but people can have systems in place so that they don't actually act on those things. Do they have to take, is it something they take voluntarily? Like they have to take a pill on a regular basis kind of thing? Um, sometimes meds can be involved for sure, but other times it's, it's, it's group therapy. It's, check-ins with family it's monitoring what's yeah. on the computer it's um you know things like that yeah it might have to be a combination of the the thing that sucks about the prison alternative because you know removal from society for some while the, the thing that sucks is how horrible and broken and how much more trauma will be inflicted on that person by sending them to prison yeah it, and but, does it do the job that we're hoping because you know so let me ask you Berto, as a judge what are you hoping, you know, you have these tools available to you to punish or to sanction. What is your hope, your outcome, given given likely scenarios, I, what are you hoping for? Yeah, my philosophy is, which I realize won't go over well for most people, but it's like, I'm triaging. We have horrible things happening on a daily basis. This unfortunate, theoretically, individual had a, you know, either they, either they have some horrible reasons because they were abused or something was already wrong in their head, whatever, for doing these things. Or or it was caused by the horrible side effect of an operation that they had no control over. So it's no fault of their own, likely, in any case. But it's a fact that they're abusing children, and we can't have that. So triaging, we have to remove them from society. Now, again, if there are proven methods that we can look at and say, you know, that's different. But So if... If someone steps forward and says, we have a treatment protocol and a monitoring system that can be put in place such that tomorrow they could be in a halfway house. Sure. And if, and if they step outside the bounds of the treatment, they will immediately, they have an ankle bracelet right, right, right. and can be found and will go to prison. Will you allow that, Judge? Especially if, if this is not, it also matters the... Um severity of these crimes right if, if this is uh if this involved murders and, and torture and all those things well probably let's say take that risk three children sexually yeah. abused over the span of four months yeah that sounds like likely some middle ground right like they won't have to be tortured abused and 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 um further traumatized in prison uh and we are taking a bit of a risk as society but not as big of a risk so you're saying you allow me as the lawyer as the recommendation sentence of tomorrow enter a halfway house where they can actually have a job they can socialize they can go on a computer yeah if this is the if we have if if you're showing me data or i'm aware that these kinds of programs work and there are you know to some extent measures in yeah. place that will and these kinds of people don't you know they're not like ted bundy's yeah, where yeah. they it, they're not going to get very far before we round right. them up that kind of thing um now, people on the other side will say, he abused my children Yeah, it's horrible. for four months, and he's going free? Yeah. He's not going to prison? Yeah. What's wrong with you, Judge? 
Yeah, I know. It's it, the universe we live in is very weird, <laughs> un- unjust, and we're trying to do the best we can to balance all the factors. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so you see the because cause plays a role in the legal system. You're mm. as a judge not caring. You're just I don't really care where it comes from. I'm more practical about the future. But the way our justice system works, cause means everything. That if the person did it because of the brain damage to their brain, yeah, then they're not culpable. That's the, we have a very black and white legal system. Not culpable. You know, they're yeah. not guilty by reason of insanity. They've been determined by science to be impaired significantly at the time of the crimes that they did not either one have the ability to determine right from wrong or they had no control over their behavior or or they were under this delusion that compelled them to take these actions so if they're not culpable then they're not guilty by reason of insanity but if they are culpable and they knew that it was wrong they did it anyway then throw away the key but if they're not then we need a more humane answer. And that that's what this documentary kind of lays out, I think, a little bit, right? In some ways, I, I really do wish that all prisons were actually, quote-unquote, insane asylums, but not really that connotation. I wish that all treatment prisons centers were maybe a treatment better. <laughs> centers yeah. for psychological issues. Yeah. Because, Trauma, for example. Yeah, because yeah. that is what's really going on in all these cases. It's just a matter of degrees. Yeah. In, in one degree... The quote unquote sociopath gangster who's part of a mob beats someone's skull in with a pistol, but they seem perfectly lucid and cogent. And so we're like, yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with this individual. But there is something abnormal about that individual within society. But when we send them to prison, all that's going to happen, statistically, is they're just going to get further down the line of criminality. Yeah. Or at and least continue. Ostensibly, that's the stated purpose of prisons is rehab. But of course we know that underfunded inhumane practices. So the only way I would use that, sadly, it would be like, well, no, I'm just, it sucks. It's a terrible system, but I'm keeping them away from society. But I would like to have a better system, which is, and again, I say Norway, I don't have all the facts, but it seems like they have a system there that is about preventing and like rehabilitating, I mean. Yeah. As a Swedish person myself, I can tell you that we have superior things in all dimensions. <laughs> Anytime you think of something like as a society, <laughs> uh, you know, on a ranking scale, Scandinavia wins every single time. Just just know that. Um, <clears throat> and Japan is second, just because I'm also Japanese. But uh, just joking. Um, I am Japanese, but I'm joking about the whole <laughs> thing. Anyway, um, so... Yeah, I don't. I'm not an expert on this. Um, I did. I am trained as a as a forensic psychologist. I did uh, learn all these uh, legal. Th- I, you know, I I special. I when I got my doctorate, they allowed us specializations, and I chose forensic psychology, mostly out of curiosity, and briefly contemplated working in that field, but quickly realized that it was extremely tedious it always seems cooler than it is you know wouldn't it be boring because you're sitting there tell me about your childhood but it's forensic so they're already dead so you're just talking to the skeleton (laughs) so (laughs) it's it is boring though because you have to use standardized testing it's not a lot of interviewing it's it's mainly testing and then you put it into a computer 
and it spits out this result. And then you have to write this long report and then you have to go to court and you have to explain what you found. And you also have to say firm things because no lawyer either side wants you to say things like what I say, which is what any rational person expert in my field will say, which is like, well, this is just my opinion. You you understand? Like you get 10 other psychologists up here. You're going to get, you know, this is a soft science. (laughs) You're not asking a, like a geologist, the, the age of a rock. You're asking me to provide an opinion about a human mind of which (laughs) there's no way to answer that question. But forensic psychologists cannot think that way. Especially nowadays when there's debate about the age of the rock. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, I didn't like that. I didn't like how tedious it was. And it just, and also you're working with some pretty, uh, dangerous individuals that aren't so fun to talk to. You know, it can actually be kind of rough yeah. to talk with them. You know, and always, it sounded so much forensic psychology. You know, you think you're going to be Sherlock Holmes or something. Right. And it's like, no, you're basically like a, a right. clerk that yep. just takes numbers and writes a report. I know I'm, you know, the, I know there are forensic psychologists listening right there and they're like, no, that's not what we do. It's really fascinating. And yeah, I get it. It, but for me, it was, I had, I had other things that were more interesting to me and clinical work treatment has always been way more interesting to me anyway. So I'm going to have some more notes to kind of go over, but I'm just kind of rattle and then we'll conclude. What do you say? Yep. So dissociative identity disorder, let me ask you some questions, Berto. Is it real? I have no idea. All I know is this. I am not on the camp that says, oh, this is impossible. Um, I feel in my head that there are more than one personality. It's just not, you know, the movie style where I'm taken over by Bobby. Bobby was... Well, let me answer the question. Sorry, let me just... What I mean by that is, so it's not hard for me to imagine a range of that. I see. Yeah. The answer is yes. Dissociative identity is real, and it's ridiculous that it's still in question. Um, Question, Berto, can it be faked? Probably. Yes. (laughs) It absolutely is. Research shows that, you know, sometimes some research shows like 10% of the cases that are uh, found to be faking. Uh, but you can fake any disorder, especially especially as a criminal, and you're quote unquote trying to get get away with something. You know what I mean? I'm I'm Johnny Barrios. Gotta go for a bit. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Compelling. Um, can a mental health professional induce it in a patient? I that's what they were saying. The thing I I don't know. Like, can you hypnotize someone? I mean, I'm sure people are more suggestible than others. Some, especially if they're somewhat psychotic, like. I can imagine, sure. You to can, some extent, like, you, like I think you, you could susu- make someone susceptible, trigger them into doing something that right. they wouldn't have done. Well, so you can induce someone to think that they have dissociative identity disorder and to exhibit it as if they have it, but they don't actually have it. You know, because mm-hmm. to yeah. actually have it means that typically. Alters don't even, they're not even aware of what's happening while other things oh, are happening. Yeah, I certainly don't imagine that a doctor could create multiple personality right. disorder in someone. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, why do people, including in this documentary, deny that dissociative identity disorder exists when it absolutely does? 
And everyone, every expert agrees that it exists. It's, but there's this section of people in my profession that say it does not exist. Why do they say that? I don't know nowadays. I certainly, I, I remember talking to my dad about this in the 80s growing up. Um, I don't actually remember what he believed, but I remember having those conversations. And it's certainly, it is hard to imagine that memory personality, voice, all these things that there would be these separate compartments and that they could get switched on and off so completely as it is depicted at least. So I could see that skepticism. And then when you add in the fact in the 70s and 80s, like, you know, what what evidence you would have and just like some crappy, grainy video cassette recorder of someone making different voices. It's yeah. like, and so I could see that. Nowadays, given what you're saying about like, the prevalence of opinion that it is real brain scans. They can do all these things. I don't know why people would be still in the field. I don't know why they would be skeptical, spe- uh, skeptical outside of the field. I think uh, it, it, people might land in one of two categories either. Yeah, of course I've seen it in the movies. It's a real thing, which is just cause like we've seen it in the movies. It must be real. But the other camp might be no, because you can't imagine having two personalities. Yeah. So, we can't determine dissociative identity disorder from brain scans. Some people will actually claim that that is good data. You know, they will do MRI scans on uh, and compare alters, and they will mm. find some differences in some people. But I find that evidence to be like, um, you know, an alien comes to the United States and they don't have a telescope somehow, and they're just looking and they're th- I bet you, and they make guesses about like the personality of Oprah Winfrey, you know, and they can't even see Oprah Winfrey. You know, it's that kind of resolution that we're looking at something. And so it's um, a bit of a silliness thing. The, the evidence is when you actually look, when you actually treat people with dissociative identity disorder, and we actually read all the vignettes, people almost never arrive in your office saying they have dissociative identity disorder, one. So it's usually the clinician going, oh, do you have breaks in memory? Yeah. Um, do people say you do things that you don't that you aren't that you don't remember? Yeah. Do you have do you sometimes like find yourself you bought things and and you didn't buy those things? Yeah. Do you go by different names sometimes? <laughs> well, no, you cuz certain alters they won't uh, in the beginning of dissociative identity store awareness that typically the alter that you're talking to is not so aware of ah. of having anything wrong with them because it's such a weird thing to have. And yeah. so when you start to um, you know zero in and then you consider all the trauma that they've been through and other kinds of things, um, these individuals with the clinician will start to get to know the individual and then that's when the dissociative identity disorder is determined. Almost never does someone show up in the office and say, I'm five different personalities. You know, it, it's almost never that way. Um, and individual and dissociation when of any sort, particularly dissociative identity disorder, the individuals do not want to have it. It is yeah, yeah. terrifying to think that you have 30 other individuals inside of you that can take over at any time and do whatever they want to with you. These people are depressed. They are highly suicidal. And so when you take all that in, which is far different from any depiction that you'll see in you know popular media, um, and you actually treat these individuals and they're, you know, I guess these people could be on some super elaborate ruse that completely coincides with all the other observations 
of dissociative identity disorder, which is in the DSM-5 and has been in the DSM for uh, decades, and why would it be in there if it was something that didn't exist, then you understand that, yes, this is a real thing. That, that's why we know dissociative identity disorder is real. Plus, we have other dissociation conditions that are related that no one questions. You know, no one's like, oh, depersonalization isn't real. Like, no one says that. So I understand, uh, and you brought up some other reasons, it's a fantastical notion. You know, the idea that people get depressed or anxious, we kind of get, right? But the idea that you would have completely sectioned off parts of your personality is very difficult to imagine being true, but but yes, it is. But the other reason why people deny it, and it was, you know, exampled in this documentary, is a political reason. They don't want criminals to get off the hook. Yeah. They don't want, because there are some criminals where an alter will be the one who absorbed a lot of the abuse and therefore has a lot of violent energy. Yeah. And as an adult will take over and impose retribution on society or others that they wanted to take out on their parents while they were being severely abused while they were growing up. There are people with a political agenda of, I don't want that criminal to be, I don't want you to have sympathy for that person and I don't want the sentence to be reduced. I want them to be killed. Yeah. And if you accept that DID exists, which it does, and that an alter could commit a murder, is it okay to kill the whole person if only one of the 32 alters was the murderer? I don't know the answer to that question. What do you think, Berto? Yeah, I, 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 so again, I don't think the, the reason we kill people is, in my opinion, the wrong reason, because it's usually, it's not to save money, and it's not to uh, sort of improve society. It's punitive, and it's to give a sense of, of ultimate justice and closure. Um, it might, it might do that to some extent. Like, I, I, I believe that the affected families and individuals might get a sense of relief from seeing these individuals be ultimately punished. Um, at the same time, I think it's not ultimately that useful and it costs a lot of money. So yeah, from my perspective, um, in, we shouldn't kill in any of these cases. Uh, if we were going to kill, it would be something that no one would sign up for, which is a far quicker, less expensive um, mechanisms, but since we have such poor ability to determine actual guilt, um, these things would be fraught because tons of innocent people would be killed all the time. So the uh, the question at hand is in courts is do they go to prison or for life because they killed five yep. people? You know, and you're saying death penalty is off the table, but do, so they do go to prison for life or do you, do we let them go to a mental health treatment facility and when the psychiatrist determined that the person is no longer dangerous which would which might look like um that one alter getting some therapy essentially and maybe the person with dissociative identity disorder recovering from their traumas um having more integrate or more communication between the alters you know it's a whole did treatment protocol and after three years let's say five years seven years they are determined by the psychiatrist to be, uh, in, you know, recovered from their traumas enough, uh, have enough awareness of their dissociative identity disorder that the likelihood of them murdering again is very small. Do we let them have that option, bro? Yeah, it depends on the extent of the crimes and therefore the risk, as well as the extent of the science and the proof. 
given so, what we saw in the individuals in you know some pretty horrendous murders yeah i i think that ultimately the societal risk might outweigh um might out, might outweigh the the benefit of the doubt in in a lot of those cases but you know if it's a matter of like this i think there was one of those that i can't remember but like let's say that there was a murder committed and you determine, yeah, it was this person suffers from this disease. We can put him in a treatment. It might take a decade, but then I think we can. And then we have the science to back it up. Sure, we'll take that risk maybe as as a, as a society. Um, but you know, one of these individuals that is for a decade been murdering systematically and torturing and all these things. Am I going to even take the chance? No, because if if the science happens to be one percent wrong, it could still be disastrous. Yeah, interesting. And that's the debate. And there's yeah. no right or wrong answer. It's just a matter of an opinion. Um, I will say that there are people listening with DID. And uh, uh, I don't know why I have to mention that. <laughs> but uh, I also want to say that the vast, vast majority of people with DID do not commit murder and are not criminals. Uh, and the documentary kind of made DID look scary. While while they were introducing that idea, they had these drawings that if I didn't know anything about DID, I would have been like, oh, DID, it's so like, you know, the movie, uh, the M. Night Shyamalan movie, Split, it was another example of this. One of the altars was this murderous monster. Yeah. and A beast. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, no. <laughs> DID, if you think of dissociative identity disorder, don't think... Uh, fight club don't think split just think of someone who is a tr massive trauma survivor just the you you have to go through some horrendous trauma zero to five yeah ongoing to develop any dissociative disorder let alone dissociative identity disorder so think of someone like that probably depressed probably suicidal probably their life is a bit chaotic probably just trying to survive day to day, honestly. And, and by, by the way, the, the thing you're mentioning about the trauma, like th that's why I felt like I could relate to some extent, to some very small, but some extent to this idea of multiple personalities. Because um, in my life, when I have been acting out what I consider as acting out traumas, it really did feel quite practically like uh, there was a different voice in charge of me during mm -hmm. those times. Now, it's not a thing where I blacked out and I didn't... No, no. There were conversations happening between the one voice and the other voice. But it was someone else in charge. It really was a different version of Berto. And I have a very, very... You know, like, mine is, like, maybe the more common thing that we all experience. But I still feel like, well, yeah, but I don't think... I don't think you... There's a difference between saying, like, that little voice in my head from... Not being able to explain, like, why did I go on that shopping rampage? Why? There's like one day later going like, why did I do that yesterday? Yeah. Well, you were there. Why? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I was there. Uh, why did I scream and yell at my spouse all of those horrible things that yeah. I wish I never said? Yeah. And so I can see the germ and I could see how like in an even more traumatic, even more extreme case. Yeah. It, it dissociates enough to where, like, I don't even remember that. Right. It's severity and neurological. Yeah. It's not just yeah. like, you know, but I, there's clearly, a yeah. choice. You know, it's, right. a, it's a brain 
change that occurs. And there's clearly neurology there. Uh, Marvin Minsky, famous AI researcher, you know, he had this thing about the society of mind. And it's, it's essentially like how that's kind of the experiences. There's all these little micro pieces of your personality always kind of competing for attention and putting little thoughts up to the forefront and things like that. But in these cases, like what I'm describing, I'm hearing the little conversation in my head between the two voices, like the angel and the demon thing, right? Mm -hmm. There are literally neurons creating English language conversations that are two different ones. Yeah. And they're arguing with each other. Right. Yeah. People talk to themselves, you know, it's so seen in that light then dissociative identity disorder as you say is several layers beyond that right right um and well anyway so the other thing i'll say is that dr lewis in the documentary to me seemed way too convinced that these men had dissociative identity disorder i wasn't there i wasn't there to assess these individuals but um at no point did she say in the documentary maybe she says it in private that she is taking a guess based on data that it's like, well, maybe he had DID or maybe he was completely faking it because he was trying to, uh, get out of trouble. He was trying to just trick me. I mean, psychopaths like messing with psychologists, like notoriously, uh, because it's just fun for them. Um, or they're confused or, you know, who knows, but there's a lot of other possibilities as to why someone would look, or you induced it, which kind of looked like, because the way she talked to them, I didn't see the whole interviews, of course, but it I don't know. It just kind of had that possibility. She just seemed way too convinced, which doesn't, which is something that I find in a lot of people in my field. They, they, and maybe I'm like this too. I, I don't know, but I hope I'm not that there are certain pet theories that certain psychologists and authors and experts will have. And they become completely convinced, you know, like yeah. for me, it's attachment theory. That would be something that sure. I am bent towards, but at least I hope that I try to say, there's no way for me to prove what I'm saying. <laughs> and, <laughs> it, and you could have another model yeah. that could be perfectly valid. And, um, this just, this model just pulls all the ideas and the, the research and my observation and my own personal experience, it just, it just makes sense to me. But, you know, you can make an argument. Make sense. I would hope that I would say that. <laughs> I mean, this happens in science beyond, you know, like think about physics, right? Like that people have a certain hammer, everything looks like a nail. So it's like, yeah, I, I you know, I, I do string theory. So therefore, I'm going to try my hardest to fit everything into that model. Right. So I'm um, looking at my notes here. Um, should we talk about Ted Bundy? But but by the way, it was an interesting hypothesis that I think the the Uber hypothesis was that we assume that you know a lot of murders and really bad things are committed by perfectly sane people with no issues. It's just that they're evil, right? But then there's this minority of people that are okay. There's something very extremely wrong with them, and the hypothesis was actually no, no, no. Every one of these individuals has some sort of damage that triggers their their behavior. It's just that some of these individuals are way more damaged than others. So, like when she interviewed the uh, the executioner, 
that was fascinating. Now, granted, it's only a, a, an N of one sample size, but that executioner was like, yeah, no, I'm fine. And, and then, so on the surface, you're like, yeah, this person's perfectly well adjusted. They just happen to work as an executioner. And then, you know, you start discovering, well, there's probably a lot of trauma to this person. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and some aggression. And that whole section I thought was extremely stupid because the point I think she was trying to make and the documentary is trying to make with her is look at this totally uh, quote unquote law abiding individual, you know, someone that, you know, there's the executioner on one side, yep. the good guy. And then we have the bad guy who's being killed. When if we look at the executioner, he's exactly like the killers. Right. He has traumas. He has a violent history. He he seems calm and cool and collected. Um, you know, it's just interesting that the only person she basically accused of being a psychopath was the executioner, which could be true. Well, I, but I, at no point did she ever point to the actual murderers and go like, that guy was a psychopath. That, there was something wrong with that person. But actually, okay, so first, I, I actually took it the other direction, which is funny enough. I, I, I really liked that section, because, but I thought I understood it differently. I thought she started with the assumption that everyone could make, which was, well, if there is such a thing as a true psychopath, then maybe this person would fit the mold, because they're not insane according to society, and yet they're constantly killing others without empathy. Right. So wouldn't that be a psychopath? But then after examining all the data, it seemed like the conclusion she was trying to lean towards was, ah, this person, A, might also suffer from multiple personality. Okay, that might be a stretch. But B, they seem just as damaged as this, as these other people. Maybe not as much as some of the extremes, but... Right. Yeah. And this uh, points to this uh, maybe debate, I guess, about what a psychopath exactly is. Yeah. And, or the... The, the essence of what a psychopath is. That they're not insane. They're perfectly normal. It's just that they're unempathetic and evil. Right. Yeah. And the uh, way that I see it is that uh, due to biology and experiences, they do not have empathy for other people and they consider other people to be tools to be used rather than attachment pit figures or humans to be respected right and there is something quote-unquote different about them but you know there's lady gaga is probably different than other people too right yeah. <laughs> you know it's, uh there's a lot of differences that make up the variety of human of humans it's not like we have just two categories the psychopaths and the rest of us you know there's a lot of categories we could actually spread around one of them has happens to be quote-unquote psychopaths who give us every indication that they do not care about other humans. Like one of the studies that I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I remember being taught this that they would do is they would film the uh, individual from the side and then the researcher would come into the room and their pen would uh, fall across a table and the researchers, the researchers pen and the research toward the individual being studied and the researcher uh, would do this acting job of trying to reach for the pen. And it was kind of just out of reach. And what they found was that the non-psychopaths, and they were and they were told as the person, the individual being studied to not move, you know, don't, don't help, don't like touch their pen. You know, I don't remember what the thing yeah, was. And for the non-psychopaths, there would be this very small movement of leaning 
of like, I want to help. I want to help, but I, oh, right. I was told not. Yeah. To. I want to help with the pen because yeah. it's like, oh, you know, she's trying to get a pen. I should, I should help her. Whereas the psychopaths, there was no movement. <laughs> That's crazy. Like they're just sitting there. Yeah. Because they don't have empathy, right? That's the difference. There's something different. They don't have a neurological function or system that is similar to other humans. In the same way that if someone, I don't know, is very introverted, for example, that's a difference. Right. Someone's very extroverted, that's a difference. If you can't see red. Can't see red, that's a difference neurologically. Yeah. But... If you have this difference of no empathy, <laughs> which might involve, you know, three to uh, 100 different centers in the brain, then we see the behaviors that, that emerge from that typically, which are all the horrible things that happen. And, and that's where... Not murders. You, psychopaths are usually just destructive socially yeah. And, yeah. and legally. Not Their vast majority of psychopaths never murder anybody. And, and it's... It's interesting because um, statistically speaking, it would be pretty odd if members of gangs and the mob were all psychopaths, right? right? Like, how would they all magically find each other? Like, right, right. And yet, many of them act as if they were psychopaths, right? You, you see... Right. And that was my argument about the executioner in my head was that he it's his job, you right. know, in the same way that... You know, for all of those executions, there's someone that pulls the plug or flips the switch or injects the poison. Are all those people, Dr. Lewis, psychopaths or have traumatic histories? No. You just found the one person. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's what I was saying. It was an end of one. But it was, it it is an interesting question because uh, I don't think every, everyone could do that job. But that's the same thing, could be the same thing as saying, well, not everyone can do every job, right? Not everyone can be a surgeon. Yeah. yeah. Not everyone could be a dentist. Not everyone, everyone could be a, a plumber. Not everyone could be a septic system cleaner. But still, <laughs> there is that question of why, right? And, right? and is the answer simply, and it could be a range. Sure, it could be a range. Uh, some people could be simply more pragmatic. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, no, actually, I do have nightmares, but you know what? Someone's got to do this job. Other people could actually be literally more in, uh, inert to it. You know, like, actually, I don't feel much for these people. Or, and or, you have a belief system that completely yeah. uh, meaningizes yeah. these situations such that it's right. not murder. Right. You're just doing what is going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And you're just flipping a switch. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, when I think about it, it's kind of grisly. But if I didn't do it, someone else would do it. So, right. you know, it's kind of interesting for me to be you know i kind of like to everyone treats me a little differently i get a little bit extra pay kind of you know puts me at the center of history you know i'm there when these happen it's interesting you know like there's a lot of different things that could happen aside from the thesis of this documentary i just remember like why are we going here like you're talking to someone who has a job and he happens to have this kind of rough history you know i'm like did you talk to all the other executioners to get a sample size going here? Because right, I don't right, know right. what your point is. I, I see. I see your point there. Yeah, that that is true. That it is cooking the data in that sense. Yeah, I still found and, it, and, and, interesting. It, and, and it seemed like another. It, it seemed like oh, I get it. You're against the death penalty. Like yeah. you're you're trying to point out that the executioner right. is is no different from the, exec, right, the executed. Right, right. 
which I'm not compelled by. Now, sure. for the record, I will say that I'm not for the death penalty. I, I, fi- I find one, um, it's research shows it's not a deterrent. Like when you increase the death penalty, it doesn't reduce murders. In fact, they even talked about the documentary that there's some evidence that it might increase. And we don't know why that is. It could be correlation, not causation. Well, uh, but there- it also can create a culture uh, that, you know, it's another data point of justifying retributional murder, you know, because that's that's what it seems like. And so it, in, it infects the society with this value of if someone wrongs you, you have to wrong them. Yeah. Then you have the right, if not the duty to to wrong them back. And, and yeah. And so so for the record, um, I'm not for it. I'm also not for it because when we think about the costs to our society, like money wise, <laughs> it is astronomically more expensive to <laughs> to deal with someone on death row yeah. all the appeals yep, that, yep. that are humane because you should give them lots of appeals right but they bog the system down they bog the prison systems down and they bog our society down our political let's just do away with it Sweden doesn't have it. <laughs> well, and, and pretty sure I don't know that. I just assume Sweden does not have the. Death I believe part of the reason it doesn't help to prevent is because the level of disconnection between crimes and the death penalty is so grand that there's no way that you're you're walking into a convenience store and you're like, you got your gun, you're going to rob it, and you're like, oh wait a minute, if I shoot the clerk after 20 years, I might be convicted and go to the death right. like that's not the math you're doing in your head right. you're already risking going to jail right. you're, you're breaking the law now in some countries and I'm definitely not advocating this in some countries the punishments are extreme and immediate right so like oh you were caught robbing we're gonna chop your hand off okay so if that if, if you as a person in that society see that connection you actually might be deterred because it's so extreme and in your face I'm not saying that's good but in this society, there is no direct connection. So no one in the heat of uh, passion or whatever is thinking, oh, but wait, what if I lose the appeals after 30 years? Yeah, and well, I- <laughs> particularly, uh, you know, in some contexts where uh, it's so much more important to save face yeah. or you're so desperate yeah. for money to, you know, pay for food or right. something, you know. Um, yeah. And... The other thing I'll say is I totally understand why people support the death penalty. I get it. I'm a human being. I don't consider the support of the death penalty to be some aberration or some immoral thing. I I I get it. And um I don't disparage those who are like no, that person brutally murdered 15 people including my sister. That person does not deserve another day on this planet. They have forfeited their privilege to life. And so, no, they're gone. I get that. I just, when I think of the whole thing and I think of what message are we giving as ourselves, you know, because the government is us. It's our decisions as a society. I... I guess I just want to kind of live in the Star Trek world, you know? It's like this idealistic utopia where, you know, they don't have money in the Star Trek world. <laughs> They've solved poverty. No one's poor anymore. Like, it it all kind of has to do with that. of just like this higher ideal of let's... It just feels like 
stepping back in history to a more barbaric time. And, well, but and we also shouldn't kid ourselves. Like life in prison in our prison system, I, I, I don't like it's. I am not ready to conclude that. Oh yeah, that's automatically better than than killing someone. Yeah, because like you're given how much suicide happens in prison. Yeah. Right? yeah. So I, I am. I actually take a slightly different route with it which is let him stew in the room. no 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 I, I remember i'm not trying to punish anyone okay i'm simply saying look if we had really reliable ways to determine guilt or i i should say responsibility or whatever you want what word you want to use i actually would be for i i would consider like uh i would call it euthanasia or something which is like okay we have really reliable ways to determine who did what we don't want this risk anymore in society. It's very sad and tragic. There's tons of reasons why it happened, but now it comes to an end. This person's life is put put to an end. Now that sounds horrible and 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 evil to some people, but that that is something. However, we don't have these reliable mechanisms to determine guilt, and therefore I say, well, the only other thing we can do is keep them away from society. I just wish we had a better way to keep them away from society and not make them a torture them and make them into criminal worse criminals yeah one a more humane prison system yeah two uh, more money for treatment programs that are designed and are more likely to work to actually rehabilitate someone such that they can be released into you know because you know we've been talking about murders and you know life but the vast majority of people send to prison it's not life it's it's you know one to ten years or something yeah and and there are programs that do help people, and many people are many people do emerge from prison better off than they left yeah. than they went in. Uh, many people don't, and uh, but if we have, but it's all about a mon- It's all about money, and and, and political Absolutely. and political will. So we have to dedicate the funds to care. One could argue that it would save us a lot of money down the road because of other you know crimes and death and. Yeah. Um, having to re-imprison them, that kind of thing. Yep. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit, you know, they, they, at the very end they had, of the documentary, they had kind of a reveal that Ted Bundy might have had dissociative identity disorder. And there there were a couple details that were interesting. One is, is that um, he had different styles of of um, signing his name. Particularly he had, he would sign himself, he would sign his letters to this one a girlfriend or wife or something, a partner of his, Sam. You know, yeah, sometimes he sometimes he would do ten and some Ted, right? And sometimes he would sign Sam, which, which was his grandfather, which right? is grandfather's <laughs> name, who theoretically was also a psychopath yeah. and was the one who genetically and behaviorally turned Ted into a burgeoning psychopath himself. Yeah, and so and often dissociative identity disorder individuals will incorporate names from. Their family, you know, I they will mm-hmm. inter, you know, and that's common that will internalize the abuser. The other piece of evidence is that he, when he talked about the killing, he would say it was the entity. Um, <laughs> these are extremely circumstantial yeah. uh, pieces of evidence pointing towards dissociative identity disorder. I imagine that if he actually had it, there would be so much more data because he was studied and interviewed and he talked a lot, right, mm-hmm. and. and so she also diag- she actually was called in during the Ted Bundy case and diagnosed him with bipolar, which I found to be dubious. 
um, given what I know about Ted Bundy. It's possible, but the evidence she gave was not convincing to me. Um, which just points to this thing that I would, this is another reason I kind of mentioned this about forensic psychology is that my perception is, <laughs> and I apologize to you forensic psychologists out there, but you know, if you're one of these people, I hope that you can, I hope that you are aware enough to avoid this, which is that forensic psychologists are kind of like the top of the pyramid in a lot of ways. If a forensic psychologist says something, like Ted Bundy, I evaluated him. He has bipolar for the following reasons. There's not a lot of people who's going who are going to argue with you, mm. um, because not lay people are going to like. Well, what do I know? Yeah. Um, non forensic psychologists are going to be like, well, you're a forensic psychologist. This is your thing. You understand. And you evaluated this person. And you actually, you know, yeah. evaluated him. <laughs> but um, and but even when I'm treating people who want to be treated. And I have weeks and weeks and weeks of evaluating them. It's hard to know, like, is something, you know, because bipolar, something's wrong with the brain. That's a brain disorder. Yeah. It's not like having a personality disorder. You know, bipolar is a fluctuation in brain biology right. such that you have manic states, quote unquote, normal states and depressive states that are completely different from each other. And, uh, you know, usually they're pretty pronounced and noticeable. And... I just find that a lot of forensic psychologists are extremely sure of themselves. And when I was being taught and supervised by other forensic psychologists, I would often ask, well, okay, how do you know? <laughs> and they would never answer the question, the ones that I would talk to, would never answer the question sufficiently. They're like, well, I conducted the test. Right. I'd be like, well, but what if you're wrong? You know, <laughs> what, what if the tests aren't accurate? What if you're not catching something? What if we don't even know what they have because we haven't discovered what they have yet? And the answers would always be like, but I administered the test. I administered the test. And, we and, fixed the glitch. <laughs> and, and my experience says blah, blah, blah. And yeah. I've seen this before. And everyone else agrees. You know, these kinds yeah. of statements. I'm like, because, you know, when we test the distance between the Earth and the moon... Yeah. And you ask a scientist, how do you know that? They're like, well, actually, it's an average because it fluctuates. And, you know, here's we have literally 150 different studies independent mm -hmm. of each other that use this laser. And we left a mirror up there when we went up there and we and we have we confirm this data by actually measuring a mile and we, you know, use the, the laser there. And, you know, we we've, we've but they never landed on the moon. So, <laughs> yeah, we have multiple angles of determining the distance, average distance between the earth and the moon. And that's how we know to me. I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. But when I talk to forensic psychologists, their confidence level to me just is overblown given the data that they're looking sure, at. Sure. And so the fact that she evaluated him with bipolar, but other people evaluated him as a psychopath <laughs> and not bipolar and a narcissistic, you know, the, the, from my study of him, which is, of course, from very afar, and I can't diagnose him, um, but he's not going to be harmed by me conceptualizing him, <laughs> is that he looked like a psychopath, a classic psychopath. He looked like someone with narcissistic personality disorder, a classic person with narcissistic personality disorder. He looked like um, someone with um, a compulsive sexual sadism disorder, yeah. which was also classic. 
And by the way, my etiology, and because we've done episodes on it before, was that biology is, you know, looks like his grandfather, uh, looks like psychopathy might have went in his family. We don't know who his father is, who could have also been a psychopath. Who knows? Um, he developed psychopathy in result of biology, genetics, and also being what might have been severely abused and or abandoned. We know he was abandoned as a young child. But also severe disorganized attachment resulting from, you know, early attachment disruptions. He was in an orphanage. He had a father that it was his grandfather. Eventually, you know, just read the whole story of Ted Bundy. Yeah. And I, I, the biggest takeaway for me from that section wasn't so much, does he have multiple personality? It was sort of a reminder, but more even a discovery of, right, his childhood isn't this peachy keen normal childhood that right. he talked about. Right. Because his story... Other, yeah. Yeah, his story was like, no, I have, I had a normal, great family. And then porn made and me do porn it. porn made me bad. <laughs> right, right. Um, and to be clear, disorganized attachment doesn't cause you to kill someone. But, it, you know, according to him, when his first girlfriend broke up with him, or he, you know, he had a major breakup when he was around 20 or something, he had months of confusion and emotional detachment and emotional dis- disruptions. And, right. and it sounded to me like a reaction an overreaction to attachment disruption that is usually indicative of of massive disorganized attachment and that would explain the psychopathy and the narcissism which can emerge absolutely from disorganized attachment we're used to um thinking of disorganized attachment as borderline and it often can be but it can result in these other other things as well and um, the fact that she would just say he has bipolar, I'm, I'm just like, I just, mm-hmm. I just don't think that. And then to think that, and she was, you know, she seemed pretty convinced he had dissociative identity disorder too. Yeah, it's possible, but um, I just would assume that other data, because just think of all the writing and all the speculations about him. But it is an interesting idea. Like, what if he did have dissociative, or at least a mild case of it? Say he had two other. I mean, he certainly was potentially abused enough growing up. Yeah. So it's possible that he had one alter that was the entity that did do the killing. But he talked at length in interviews about this massive compulsion to kill. Yeah. And he didn't say it's this other entity that had the compulsion to kill. He's like, I had that I had that compulsion to kill. Yeah. But, you know, who knows? Um, well, what we don't know is... And, you know, it is possible that everything that we ever saw in interviews and in the courtroom and everything had was just that part of him. Right. And that there were parts of his life when he was married and in other times where it was the other parts. Yeah. And he was ashamed yeah. of DID and would yeah. cover it up. You know, who knows? But but there were also not reports of forgetting and having right. black exactly. and- Right. Exactly. There was one person on the show that, you know, that they, because they show these interviews with mm-hmm. Dr. Lewis and the Arthur Shawcross, the one, he was sort of a bigger, older guy. Yeah, I remember. Um, he didn't seem, it's like he might have had deity, but from the little bit of the interviews, I was like, uh, I don't know. The Max guy, the guy with the shaved side of his the head. The younger looking dude. Yeah. yeah. Um, he seemed like he was faking it. <laughs> But oh, I can't really. I, yeah, but I can't tell. Okay. Yeah, because he had more of a movie version. Because oh, DID, like you said earlier, changing voices and all that stuff like that can happen, but it's it's not as common. Okay. Um, because 
a typical person with DID will have 30 alters. You, you can't have 30 accents. <laughs> right? that's, that's kind of hard to pull off. Unless it's much, you're a great actor. <laughs> right. But it's much more common to um, not, as an outsider, tell. Um, you know, that's that's more. It's way more Hollywood. You can, you know, certainly there are examples yeah. of alters. Like, whoa, that person looks like a five-year-old child right now. Um, but it, it, in the person that I've treated with DID, it's much more subtle. The person who actually looked like they might have had it was um, was John Frank Garrett. He was the white dude with the southern accent. Oh yeah. He was the one that was like, my aunt Barbara said, I'm not going to go to jail. That's why everything's yeah. fine. And when you saw his interview, um, uh, let's see, was it? Yeah. When you see his interview, it it did look legit. Yeah. Um, and because the way that it happened for him was usually when people transition, there'll be this, uh, there'll be kind of like this little tiny seizure-ish, like little state that they'll go into, you know, as, as a switch. And he seemed to have that. And mm. he also wasn't, he did, I can't remember what I saw in the interview, but he wasn't like, yeah, I have DID. You know, he was like that one Max guy seemed like, this is fun. I got to like, right. be, I got to act all these different parts. You know, he seemed to almost kind of revel in yeah, that yeah. experience. Whereas the John Frake Garrett guy, as he's being interviewed, it, it didn't look like he was enjoying the switching. Yeah. You know, it didn't look like, ooh, now I got to play the Zen. Like literally Max, he had a Zen monk yeah, yeah. altar, you know, which can happen. But anyway, so I just wanted to point that out. Like if you want to see examples of tiny bits of interviews with these murderers. And by the way, we'll say again. <laughs> People with DID should not be associated with murder. People with schizophrenia should not be associated with murder. Uh, these people killed because they made it. They made a choice. Um, maybe their disorder had something to do with it. Maybe their trauma had something to do with it. But we should not be associating dissociative identity disorder with murder, schizophrenia with murder, even psychopathy with murder. You know, murder murderers are very specific, strange individuals, and. They made a choice. You know what I'm saying, Berto? I know what you're saying, man. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs>